Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, you know it well. You need not turn there. That's not my text. I'll give you my text at the end of the message. No. <laughs> now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith always travels hand in hand with the companion of obedience. Where you see true faith, you're going to see obedience. And where you see obedience, you're going to see faith. Think about this. What was it that kept the children of Israel in Numbers 14 for crossing into the promised land? The promises were there. They certainly had seen evidences of the leading of God. And yet they refused to go through. What about in Judges with Gideon? 22,000 men went home, leaving 10 behind. What was the difference between the 22,000 and the 10 that remained? What about David? How old David was, we're not sure, but he was old enough to know better, but not old enough to be in the army. I wonder if when he woke up that morning, if he thought, today I'm going to take on Goliath. It was just another day. Dad says, I need you to take a care package to the boys. So he obeys. And he gets there and God is about to launch him into history in a story that is told all over the world, time and again. What is it about David that was different than the rest of Saul's army? What did he have? You say, well, he had faith. I'm going to suggest that there were some other things. You see, when obedience is not present, faith falters. And when faith is not present, obedience falters. But there is an insidious enemy of faith. And that's what we want to look at today. The insidious enemy of faith. When this enemy is present, faith falters. This enemy, when he's present, obedience is seldom present. This enemy has toppled many a good Christian, many a good servant of God. This enemy has toppled churches. This enemy raises its ugly head and paralyzes us. Take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. We know the verse well. You probably have it memorized. If you're in my counseling class, you certainly have it memorized. 2 Timothy 1, 7. If you found it, let's read it together out loud. Ready? For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power of love and of a sound mind. Father, we yield ourselves to the Holy Spirit this morning. I pray, Father, that as we attack the very gates of hell, that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, give victory. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The spirit of fear is the enemy of faith. Now, please understand, when I'm talking about fear, I'm not talking about the kind of fear that is protective fear. 
When I was growing up in the interior of Brazil, next to our yard, and we had a rather large yard, was a corral. And in that corral was a Brahma bull. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen a Brahma bull, but those things, those creatures are huge. And they had this huge fence around him. And I watched as a little boy, and I was probably eight, nine years old, I watched when this Brahma bull got angry, he'd just go through that, that fence like it was a matchsticks. So I had fear of that bull. Uh, a respect for him. Whenever he looked at me and kind of rolled his eyes and started pawing the earth, I knew it was time to exodus. All right? So I'm not talking about that kind of fear. I'm talking about the kind of fear that paralyzes, and we're going to be identify it momentarily. But I also want to examine God's remedy because we have that in this verse. So let's do an analysis. The analysis of fear is God has not given us a spirit of fear. So the secularists have a definition. Modern psychiatry defines it as a disease. Now, please understand something. If it is a disease, then there is no hope. But if it's sin, the blood of Jesus Christ provides hope. And we need to understand that. We, we tend to slip in because the guys have their PhDs and all the rest of the DDTs and all the rest of these kind of things. We think, well, they must be really smart. Anything that leaves out the word of God is not intelligentsia. So please understand that. But they, they call it a phobia or they call it paranoia or some forms of schizophrenia or OCD and the list goes on and on and on and on. Some with the metaphysical world call it demonic control. But the spiritual source, think about this. Genesis 3.10. And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden and I was afraid. For the first time, Adam experienced something called fear. It was not created in him. It came as a result of the fall. Fear comes as a result of sin. Romans 8, 15 says, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Fear places us in bondage. We become a slave to fear. It becomes paralyzing. Anxiety. We had a lady in our church that she was used to using fear as a way to get her way. And she started coming to our church, and one day she was sitting down about in here, and all of a sudden it looked like she was having a stroke. I didn't know her well, so we called 911 and hauled her off to the hospital. Well, the hospital had known her for quite some time. But she used that, and she then went into a panic attack. The interesting thing about it is the panic attack now controlled her. She no longer controlled it. She had no control of when she was going to have one of these attacks. Listen, when you play with sin, eventually sin becomes your, your, your you become a servant to sin. Be careful. Good, sincere people of God fall into these paralyzing prisons. And we use these different things and to, to, to manipulate and we think we've got control. 
And so the devil hands us his bar and we stick it in the ground. We think we're getting stronger. Before long, we find we've built a prison of our own making with fear. I cannot respond in faith because my fear becomes greater than my faith. 1 John 4.18 says that fear hath torment. Now, if you're imprisoned by fear, it's not my purpose this morning to throw you under the bus. We're going to try to give you some answers because the Bible has the answers. Interesting thing is most often I cannot control circumstances or people by worrying or through anxiety. Growing up in Brazil, I was in the northeast part of Brazil. I was taller than the average Brazilian. But then I got to the States. It's like someone cut six inches off my feet. Man, I want it. I wanted to. I wanted to be able to say that I'm six foot. It just never happened, and I worried about that. And I tried different kinds of things, and went to gyms, tried to stretch, you know, and try to become six foot. It just never happened. And one of the things I'm finding out that's even more disconcerting is the older I get, the shorter I get. That's really disconcerting. But, you know, the Lord speaks to this in Luke 12, 25. He says, and which of you with taking thought can add to his stature one cubit? You can worry about all kinds of things, but you can't change circumstances. You can't change people. So why worry? We had a lady in our church that uh, she's worried all the time. I mean, she just, she was just, would walk up and down in the foyer just worried about one thing or the other. And there were stupid things. And one day I stopped her. I said, you got to stop worrying. She said, well, somebody's got to worry around here. (laughs) And that's really, she felt that she had this ministry of worrying. (laughs) Yet we worry. We become angry. We lose sleep over something over which we have absolutely no control. Think about it. So, but there's dangers with playing with fear. Hebrews 12, 1 talks about the sin which does so easily beset us. And fa- fear is sin. It's anti-faith. God has not given us a spirit of fear. But a lady in one of our churches who, before, uh, before I arrived on the scene, she had gotten saved. And so she began praying for her husband who was not saved. And... Um, she asked the, the prayer meeting to pray for my husband. He needs to receive Christ as a, savior, as a Savior. And finally he does. He gets saved. But her reason for praying that he gets saved is that when he was unsaved, he would come home from work and stop at the local bar and have a few with his buddies. And that just bothered her. And she wanted him, she wanted him to come straight home. When he got saved, he did stop going to the bars. Instead, he stopped at church. <laughs> And he did mow lawn and did different jobs and he was still getting home late and she was angry. She found something out. If she was sick, he'd come right home. And so she began to become sick. 
by the time I arrived at this church as a pastor, sickness had taken over her. And she was no longer in control. She had tried on numerous occasions to take her own life. Her boys, who were teenagers at the time, had wrestled the shotgun away from her several times. And it had taken over. Let me tell you something. You cannot play with sin and get away with it. You just can't. It becomes an occasional spell of worry and anxiety. And before long, it becomes frequent. And then it becomes our default reaction. We just automatically go there. And now we've created a prison cell. At Ben Salem, we had a young lady. She did not go to our church. She was 19 years old and asked if she could come and see us. She said, I, I want to come, but I'll only come if I can sit on the floor under the overhang of your desk. I said, yeah, go for it. I don't care. But I said, why? She said, because if I sit under this overhang, the overhang will keep me from floating away. She had what we call agoraphobia. And um, we had to talk to her and find out that she had used fear as a way for not having to go to school. Because school, she was being uh, teased and there were some issues going on. So she found that if she got sick, she didn't have to go. And she got excused absences. And it finally took over her. She couldn't leave the house. She couldn't go anywhere because she had become a prisoner to fear. When we begin to look at Jesus through our problems, rather than looking at our problems through Jesus Christ, all of a sudden our problems become huge and Jesus Christ becomes small. Let me ask you a question. How big is your Jesus? Have you been looking at him through your problems? We somehow have this idea that if, I, if I'm going through difficult times, I can call on the Lord and he'll fix my problems. I want you to think about your prayer life. Have you ever thought about that? Lord, do this for me. Lord, do this for me. Lord, do that. We treat him like he's an omnipotent errand boy. Instead of being the God of the universe. Remember the story of Mark 4? Jesus is crossing Galilee for who knows how many times. He's tired, so he's sleeping on a pillow. And the sea erupts. And the disciples are bailing. They're doing everything they can to keep that ship on the right side of the sea. And all of a sudden, they think it's going to go down. So they look for Jesus and they said, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And it's almost like they're inferring the least you could do is bail. The God of the universe, the creator of all things, they wanted to hand him a bail bucket. We do the same thing. We've got God in this little box and we limit him to what our possibilities are. When what he did was stand up and say, peace be still. And they were amazed. Let me ask you a question. What's the last time God amazed you? 
when he did something that absolutely could not be explained in any other way except God. Stop asking Jesus to bail and ask him for great and mighty things. Second half of this verse is the antidote to fear. Power loving of a sound mind. This is the part that you receive when you receive Christ as your Savior and become a part of the family of God. You have the authority of the God of the universe. But we walk around like we're crippled. We walk around like we're powerless because we're crippled with fear. There's a man who I will not mention his name, but was in one of our churches. Didn't come very often because he suffered from PTSD. At least that's what the psychiatrist said. And so he almost lost his job several times because he spent so much time in the psychiatric unit of the hospital. So I went to see him one day, and he lived in a, in a home, and he had old-fashioned carpet. You guys won't understand what this is. It's called shag, all right? Back in the 50s and 60s, it was the thing. You, if you had shag carpet, you were in. Well, he had shag carpet, and I asked him, I said, you got shag here. He said, oh, yeah, I put it in purposely. I said, Why? He says, well, he says, because I can grab a hold of it and it will keep me from floating away. Now understand, this man was an intelligent man, was an officer in the army in Vietnam. But fear had gripped his heart. And one, he, so he seldom came to church because he was afraid that he would just float away. They had this, this uh, Ford Bronco, and his wife did the driving. He would sit on the passenger floor and put his head up underneath the dash as far as he could get it so he wouldn't float away. Now, please understand something. You said the guy's crazy. No, he was imprisoned. Imprisoned to fear. He showed up in church one Sunday, and I was preaching this text. Had no idea he was going to be there. At the end of the service, he came to his wife. He says, give me the keys to the car. She said, where are you going? He says, I'm going to uh, up uh, I-75. We're near Flint and Saginaw. I-75 in that particular area is three lanes each way and was always busy. She said, are you sure you want to do this? He says, yes, I want to do it. And I had challenged people if they were in fear to just re rebuke fear in the name of Jesus Christ. So he takes off. Hour later, he's still not back. And now, now we're worried, thinking maybe we need to get in the car and go find out where he's at. Pretty quick, he comes in. He's all smiles. He said, it worked. And I said, what worked? He said, every time I felt, felt the fear, I'd say, in the name of Jesus, I rebuke you and leave me alone. And he said, then I keep going. Listen, the power of God is incredible. We just got to plug in. We've got to make sure it's there. we just got to make sure we appropriate it. Don't allow yourself to be placed into slavery again. You've been purchased from it 
with a price, the price of the blood of Jesus Christ. You are now a son of God. You cry, Abba, Father. He's your daddy. Romans 8, 15. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Second answer is love. 1 John 4, 18. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts without fear because fear is not that torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. The assurance that God loves me and has my best interests at heart. That will get rid of fear. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe that God loves you and has your best interests at heart? Now, I'm not asking if you understand that, because I'm sure all of you understand that. There's a huge difference between understanding it and believing it. Believing that no matter what the circumstances are, that God has designed them for your good. Romans 8, 28, 29. To conform you to the image of Jesus Christ. God loves me and has my best interests at heart. So it's a focused love for the Lord that becomes greater than fear. No matter what's happening, I keep focused on Christ. And God gives me victory over fear. We say to the Lord, I will give myself away on your behalf. Romans 14, 8. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord. And whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. Because he loves us. The third one is a sound mind. The idea of secure, sound mind, also a disciplined mind. It's a mind that is not easily tossed to and fro by people or circumstances. It can accept success with humility and defeat with discour- without discouragement. It's that kind of sound mind. So let's take the three and put them together in an arsenal. Some of you have served in military, so you understand that they take all the different kinds of weapons and then show you how to work them all together. When I was playing soccer, we were taught how to play the specific position that we were brought, contracted for. But we also were taught different, how to play different positions in case we had to. Now, I am very right-handed, very right-handed. I'm not sure why God gave me a left hand and a left foot. I, I, it just there, just kind of drags along. But uh, I'm very right-handed. One of the first things they told me is, you've going to have to learn to kick with your left foot. And I go, yo. <laughs> he said, look, if you don't learn how to kick, and I was, I was goalie, so I didn't have to shoot with my left foot. He said, look, if you can only kick with your right foot, we're only going to give you half of the pay because you're only playing with half a body. Well, that was motivation. So I had to learn how to <laughs> kick with my left foot. So put it all together. The key is to looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. I must be looking at Jesus all the time. Now, here's what happens. You've got, a, you've got an or, a command 
to which you have to be obedient. The moment that happens, fear steps in. Say, yeah, but what if? Oh, yeah, but what if this? What if that? By the way, the what ifs are messengers from Satan. They get you to second guess yourself. So it's not a matter of what if. It's a matter of Jesus. We keep looking at him. And I'm just going to walk with him until he tells me otherwise. I think probably the best example is Peter walking on water. Now, a lot of people laugh at Peter. But let me tell you something. He was the only disciple that ever walked on water. Pretty cool. Until you, until you learn how to walk on water, don't throw Peter under the bus. But, so he's walking on water. There's a storm going. It's not as though everything is glassy and everything's calm. There's a storm going. And he's walking up one side of the, the, the wave and down another side and maybe another one's coming contrary. So yeah, just imagine, it's a, it's a storm. And he's walking toward Jesus. His eyes are focused on Jesus. Everything's cool. Now, this isn't in scriptures, but I just like to think this. I think Thomas is back in the boat. He wants to help Peter. And he hollers out, look out, Peter, comes a big one. <laughs> and Peter takes his eyes off Jesus and down he goes. Now, let me tell you something. There are Thomases all over this world who are well-intentioned, but say, you can't do that. How, how do you expect to pay your bill? Do you understand that ministry doesn't pay much? How are you going to plan to rear a family? And by the way, these are all, from a secular perspective, they're all legitimate questions. Just put Thomas on them, okay? He wants to take your eyes off Jesus. You say, well, I'm not sure I can come back next semester because I don't know where I'm going to get the money. Let me tell you something. That's not your problem. You say, whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait a minute. The business office says it is. <laughs> That's God's problem. You just obey him. By faith, keep your eyes on Jesus and just obey him. Many of you in testimony time, we hear how God has supplied in miraculous ways. Understand something. The battle is not yours alone. Listen to this. Exodus 14, 14. The Lord shall fight for you and he shall hold your peace. Deuteronomy 1.30. The Lord your God which goeth before you, he shall fight for you. Deuteronomy 20, verse 4. For the Lord your God is, is he that goeth with you to fight for you against your enemies and save you. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. There are verse after verse after verse after verse that promises that God is going to fight for you. My wife and I learned this several years ago when we were clear out in Colorado and our family was in Philadelphia. When we were in Philadelphia, we could help the family and do for the family and so forth. But in Colorado, you know how far that is? <clears throat> and we started claiming these verses. 
God's going to fight for us. God's going to fight for us. God's going to fight for us. And we'd take the Bible, say, God, did you say this? Do you mean this? And he always says yes. And we say, then we're taking you at your word. It's amazing how often God did something amazing that we could never have done because God was going to fight for us. Children of Israel just left Egypt. They're not the Red Sea. Red Sea is ahead of them, and then they find out Pharaoh's army is behind them. Have you ever been there? Red Sea is ahead of you. Pharaoh's army is behind you. You don't know which is worse. You're stuck no matter which way you go. And Moses cries out, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Part of what you're doing in these four years is not just to get academic understanding about God. It's learning to stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. That's part of what you're supposed to do. That's, that's, why, that's why we don't offer these classes online. Because you need to learn some of this kind of stuff. Because there's going to come a day when you're sitting in a, pastor, in, a, in a pastor's office. And it's just you. And the question comes. I had a youth pastor who took a church not too far from us. Every week he'd call me. The pastors, is, is, is my office, my old office still open? I said, what's the problem? He says, when I was at Ben Salem and things didn't go right and people came with bad questions, I'd just send them down the hall to you. I had nobody to send them to here. It's just me. You need to learn how to do that. That's when you have to get in touch with God. And then we've had the children of Israel 40-some years later at Jordan. Jordan's overflowing its banks. And they're now going to cross over into the promised land. I often wonder about the two Levites that were the head of the Ark of the Covenant. They were yards ahead of everybody else. The river's flowing. And God says, step in the water and it will part. Now, for the guys in the back, it wasn't so bad. They didn't have to have as much faith. But those two guys in the front? Let me ask you a question. Are you being asked to step in the water? It's not about faith. It's about obeying. You see, if I'll obey, faith follows. As long as I keep looking at Jesus and obeying what he says... You know, it's a matter of taking one little step at a time. I cannot cross this entire platform with one step. It's not possible. But I can take one step. And I can take another step, another step, another step. And that's how God works in my life. That's how he works in your life. He knows what I'm capable of, and he doesn't ask me to do beyond that. He just says, take a step today. So I'll obey him today. Because I trust him. Tomorrow I'll take another step. And another step. And another step. Do I understand the steps I'm taking? Not always. 
But I've learned that God honors obedience and trust in him. So take whatever step God is asking you to take today. Don't worry about tomorrow. He'll tell you about tomorrow. Just take one today. And sometimes we have to take microscopic steps each day because each day gets, has complications all of its own. You see, the spirit of fear is the enemy of faith. The questions, and some of you are more prone to ask questions than others. You know who I'm talking about. Every time somebody says, I'm going to squeal on y'all. You guys who are musicians, you're perfectionistic. And and everything's got to fall in place before you take that step. You've got to learn to set that aside. You say, I can't. Yes, you can. But it's not about leaving the perfectionist. It's about looking at Jesus. That's what it's about. It's not about saying, well, I can't. Maybe you can't in yourself, but just keep your eyes on Jesus. Just keep walking towards Jesus. And you'll be amazed. And all of a sudden you look and say, wow. I did this and I never gave it a second thought. And God smiles. He says, I told you so. The Lord has the remedy. If I understand the kind of faith, the kind of fear we've been talking about is crippling, is destructive, destroys churches, destroys good people. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. Father, I don't know the needs of individual students here. But I know that fear is a universal problem. And because of fear, oftentimes, you're not able to do the things that you would like to do because we're not obedient. We don't have the faith to obey. And so, Father, I pray this morning your Holy Spirit would help all of us to understand that you have a purpose for our life and it's going to be okay. And you're prepared to do great and mighty things for the honor and glory of thy Son, Jesus Christ.